attempted assassinations, but this seems more gangster style. And it tells you something about this government. What comes next in Russia after the death of the mercenary chief who challenged Putin? For Saturday, August 26th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Bob Barker was a mainstay on American televisions for decades. I don't know how I will react when I know that I'm not going to get up in the morning and go into the studio and do a show. The longtime Price is Right host is dead at the age of 99, will remember his life. And thousands gathered in Washington today to mark the upcoming 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. We'll talk to a key aide to Martin Luther King Jr. who helped write the iconic I Have a Dream speech. These people out there don't know it, but they're about ready to go to church because I knew that Dr. King was going to knock it out of the ballpark. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukrainian officials say Russian shells killed two civilians at a cafe near the front lines. Three Ukrainian Air Force pilots also died in a training accident near Kyiv. NPR's Brian Mann has more. Ukrainian authorities say one of the three pilots who died in a collision involving two trainer aircraft was known by the call sign JUICE. I interviewed him last year about the challenges of facing more advanced Russian jet fighters. It's a great problem to fight with their uh, fighters for us because our jets are not capable to be effective against them. Losing three pilots, including a veteran aviator like Juice, is devastating for Ukraine's tiny air force, which is scheduled to begin receiving more advanced Western-donated F-16 fighter jets sometime next year. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials say Russian shells hit a cafe on the outskirts of Kupiansk, killing two civilians and injuring a third. That attack came in an area of northeastern Ukraine where Russian forces have been advancing. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. A wildfire in Louisiana near the Texas border has burned more than 16,000 acres since it started earlier this week. As Aubrey Yuhas of member station WWNO reports, residents in several small towns have been ordered to evacuate. Louisianans are used to evacuating for hurricanes this time of year, but wildfires, not so much. Multiple communities in and around Beauregard Parish are under mandatory evacuation orders. The fire is just one of many burning in the area and across the state. Nobody alive in Louisiana has ever seen these conditions. It's never been this hot, this dry for this long. Governor John Bell Edwards says the state's unusual number of fires this year, more than 400 in August alone, have been caused by severe drought and record-breaking and in some cases triple-digit heat. Edwards describes the whole state as a tinderbox. He says those conditions mean residents need to be careful not to start any more fires and should pray for rain. For NPR News, I'm Opera Yuhas in New Orleans. On the National Mall in Washington, D.C., thousands have gathered to mark the 60th anniversary of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington. His daughter, Bernice King, is one of the organizers of today's march. He spoke to the hopes and aspirations of people around the world. Um, as we know, injustice is, is not particular to the United States. It's, it's global. That's where he gave the I Have a Dream speech in 1963. A number of black civil rights leaders and an interfaith coalition of allies will rally on the same spot where as many as 250,000 gathered August 28, 1963, for what's still considered one of the greatest racial justice demonstrations in U.S. history. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Boston's annual Caribbean Carnival was allowed to continue this afternoon. The event was temporarily paused this morning after a nearby shooting left seven people injured. They suffered non-life-threatening injuries. City officials say the gun violence was unrelated to the carnival. Police have recovered firearms and have made arrests. The investigation is ongoing. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu plans to present a new ordinance to the city council to improve conditions in the area known as Mass and Cass. The plan would give law enforcement the opportunity to quickly remove tents, tarps, and other structures put up by people. Wu says it's the most effective way to root out crime and illegal drug use in the neighborhood. There will be some serious disruption as well in the dynamic for people who have been used to gathering and congregating at Mass and Cass. And for those who are conducting criminal activity, that disruption is um, certainly warranted and we will not be tolerating illegal activity. The ordinance would allow police to remove the tents of people who have been offered housing and social services. State transportation officials are installing new signage along Storo Drive. It's part of efforts to keep moving trucks from getting stuck under low-clearance bridges. State officials will hang a cars-only sign on Mount Vernon Street. It's part of a pilot program to keep moving trucks off nearby parkways. The issue frequently occurs during busy move-in days around the start of college. And members of the local Ukrainian community are celebrating Ukrainian independence. The annual Boston Ukrainian Festival is being held today at Boston University. Organizer Olga Lisovska says the event is also a symbol of resilience during the ongoing war with Russia. She hopes locals will learn about Ukraine through the event. You will be completely transported to Ukraine. We even called it Independence Square. So we're taking a part of Ukraine, part of Kiev, and planting it at BU Beach. The festival is free. It runs through 9 o'clock tonight. 83 degrees at 5.06. A slight chance of showers tonight, low in the mid-60s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, low 70s. Mostly sunny Monday and Tuesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. It's been nearly three weeks since the devastating wildfires swept across parts of Maui. Authorities in the historic town of Lahaina have now searched the entire burn zone, and they have not found any more bodies. Fires destroyed most of that town, which was once the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. Urban search and recovery teams are still double-checking some last places, including the ocean around the burn zone, where many tried to escape the fire. The death toll remains at 115 people. NPR's Kirk Siegler joins us from Lahaina. Hey, Kirk. Hey, Scott. So there's been so much attention on this missing persons list, and it's been fluctuating. Mm -hmm. At one point, there were around 1,000 people still unaccounted for. Is that still the case? Well, it's been pretty difficult, I should say, to really get a firm answer on that. This week, authorities released a new verified list of 388 names that they were seeking more information on. But then, Scott, they uh, clarified later that there are still hundreds of other names of people considered unaccounted for. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for context here, this kind of confusion, I should say, is not that unusual after such a large-scale disaster like this. The authorities are telling us that this is methodical work. It's a long process of trying to get people off 
this list, you know, some of the information they have coming in is wrong. There are duplicates and everything has to be vetted. Here's Maui Police Chief John Pelletier at a news conference. There's no secrecy or hidden agenda. We're going as fast as we can, but we're doing it the right way. I mean, the number is still so alarming, though. What, what's the reaction been on Maui to the fact that, that this list is still still so big? Well, there's been frustration, I think, as you can hear the police chief alluding to there. And, you know, it's human nature to fear the worst when you see a list this high. You know, where I'm standing at a makeshift memorial up on a hill looking out over this burn zone, it's huge. So much devastation about a mile down to the ocean. Everything in front of me is leveled. But, like... Uh, as we saw after the campfire in Paradise, California, the number of unaccounted for that official list, back then it was very high for days like this, but eventually they figured out that most people just hadn't checked in. You know, here in Maui, there could be tourists that have flown home, maybe left the country. And Scott, people are in a lot of crisis. It's not always their top priority to say, make sure they've called the Red Cross to let them know that it should be taken off the list. There are just a lot of reasons. But I think we can say since the official death toll has not gone up in almost a week now, there's a lot of hope here that it's not going to climb too much more at this point, especially since, as you've said, they've now searched pretty much the entire burn zone. Yeah. You've been reporting there for several days now. Give us a sense of how survivors are coping with this overwhelming loss. Well, it's a familiar pattern after a disaster like this. Lots of traumatized, shaken people. A lot of frustration, too, as we've been reporting uh, in the last couple of weeks about what went down that day in terms of the lack of official warnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, I met Ashley Cotter, who told me the only reason she and her husband got out was because they got a text from friends telling them to run. There, there, there could have been so many things that could have been done, some type of siren or an alert on your phone or what have you. That's There's just... There's a lot of questions to be asked. You know, we had no warning of anything like this. And we are, we come back to just being so grateful because we're here. They lost everything. And, you know, she told me, Scott, that she's been watching that missing persons list and figures she could have been on it had they not escaped in a golf cart. You know, figuring if they took a car, they'd just get stuck in gridlock and there would be down power lines everywhere. Wow. And real quick before we go, uh, one other thing this week, Maui County became the latest to file a lawsuit against the local utility. What's going on there? Uh, Broadly, uh, the suit says the utility knew there was a high wildfire risk and they did little to prepare. And even though the investigation into the cause of the fire has not been completed, that'll take months Mm -hmm. uh, at a minimum. They say uh, the lawsuit says the company's down power lines started it. That's NPR's Kirk Sigler. Thanks, Kirk. You're welcome. The Biden administration says it was not surprised by the plane crash that's believed to have killed a Russian mercenary leader. But Washington will be watching closely to see what happens next to Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner Group. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports that the U.S. has been tracking the group in Ukraine and across Africa. Biden administration officials have been careful in public not to speculate about Wagner's future post-Prigozhin, but the ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says her message to African countries about the mercenaries remains the same. Their actions and their activities in Africa are destabilizing, and we've encouraged countries in Africa to condemn their presence as well as their actions. Colin Clark, who's a researcher with the New York-based Soufan Group, thinks the U.S. should do more to capitalize on this moment. He doesn't see a clear strategy from the administration to counter Russia's meddling in Africa. If you look across Africa, I mean, people have called it the corridor of coups, stretching from Guinea all the way east across the Sahel into parts of Chad and Sudan. This is a large part of a very vital continent that is now up for grabs, if not 
you know, falling solely into the Russian orbit. Clark predicts there will be infighting for control over the many shell companies linked to Wagner, so it will take time to see how effective it can be in Africa. As for the fighters, many will remain as long as they get a paycheck. But Clark points out that some are loyal to Prigozhin, and that could have implications for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Whacking him mafia-style for the whole country to see is something that has a potential for blowback against Putin within Russia. And so there could be a period of domestic political strife that the Kremlin is going to have to attempt to weather over these coming days and weeks. That could be an opening for U.S. diplomats, says Daniel Freed of the Atlantic Council. He says countries should know that it is a bad bet to partner with Russia. If it is true that it was a hit, and it certainly feels like it, that's the kind of country you're dealing with. What does it tell you about the system? You know, the Soviets did assassinations, but this seems more gangster style, and it tells you something about this government. The other area to watch is Ukraine. The researcher Colin Clark thinks the Ukrainians have an opportunity with the mercenaries who had pledged allegiance to Prigozhin and who took part in his short-lived mutiny earlier this summer against Russia's top brass. We've already actually seen elements on the Ukrainian side reaching out to Wagner saying, hey, come fight for us against Russia. And he thinks the U.S. can help in that information war. A Pentagon spokesman says the Wagner forces were the most effective in Ukraine before they pulled out, but are now not much of a factor on the battlefield. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Game show host Bob Barker has died at the age of 99. Barker, whose career spanned more than eight decades, was best known as the longtime host of The Price is Right on CBS. In 2002, he broke Johnny Carson's record for continuous performances on the same network TV show. Amy Nicole Blazik has this remembrance. Bob Barker started hosting The Price is Right back when Richard Nixon was in the White House. Thirty years later, the 80-something host of the longest-running game show in history still tape five shows a week. He told NPR in 2005 he dreaded his last day at work. I don't know how I will react when I know that I'm not going to get up in the morning and go into the studio and do a show. And uh, it's hard to walk away from it. It's just hard to walk away from it, so I don't. I walk to it every day. Born in 1923, Barker grew up on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, where his mother was a schoolteacher. He never thought his future career would require cake makeup, the glare of camera lights, or games like Plinko and Cliffhanger. I wanted to pitch for the St. Louis Cardinals. That was my dream. And the only thing that prevented it was a total lack of talent. Instead, Barker pitched in with the World War II effort. He served as a Navy fighter pilot, although never saw combat. After the war, he returned to finish college and took a job hosting a radio show in Los Angeles that eventually launched his career. His next job, which lasted for 18 years, was on TV hosting Bob Barker's time hosting Truth or Consequences is twice the average lifetime for most TV stars, and for him, that was just a warm-up. It was Barker's role on The Price is Right that cemented his fame. From 1972 on, his face was a familiar presence in the living rooms of everyone from little old ladies to kids homesick from school. Barker even had a following among college students who claimed to set class schedules around the show. A group of students at the University of Virginia founded the Disciples of Bob Barker. They made a pilgrimage to the show's taping in Los Angeles. And they are Disciples of Bob Barker. Now, I have Matthew. Is Mark, Luke, and John, are you out there? 
The show's simple format, people trying to guess the price of common household products from Windex to washing machines, appealed to fans. And the show didn't change much over four decades. Neither did the host, except once, when Barker stopped dyeing his hair. Seemingly overnight, he went from dark hair to white. It's one of the most talked about events in the show's history. The audience just gasped. And I got a, a card from a man in the Midwest. He said, Bob, you must have had one hell of a night. As a pop icon, Barker landed cameo appearances on TV shows like Futurama and Family Guy and a few movie roles. He played himself in the 1996 movie Happy Gilmore. And in one scene, Barker, a karate black belt in real life, teaches star Adam Sandler a memorable lesson in manners. You like that, old man? You want a piece of me? I don't want a piece of you. I want the whole thing. They were talking about making Happy Gilmore, too. And Adam's doctor said that he didn't think Adam could take another beating like I gave him. Parker used his fame for another great passion, promoting animal rights. In 1988, after 21 years hosting the Miss USA and Miss Universe pageants, Barker resigned when producers refused to eliminate fur coats from prize packages. He established and endowed a foundation funding spaying and neutering services across the U.S. And in recent years, Barker donated large sums to various law schools to promote the study of animal rights. Each day, he ended the prices right with the same words. Bob Barker reminding you helps control the pet population. Have your pets spayed or neutered. Barker earned more than a dozen Emmys and was twice named TV's most durable performer by Guinness World Records. The St. Louis Cardinals never knew what they missed. Amy Nicole Blazik, NPR News. We'll say it too. Have your pets spayed or neutered. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, where we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, WBUR.org. Coming up at 6, it's the Moth Radio Hour, and we'll have stories about foods that nourish the body as well as the soul. Listen on the radio or the WBUR app. 78 degrees at 518, a slight chance of showers tonight with a low in the mid-60s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, low 70s, and mostly sunny Monday and Tuesday, mid-70s. Thanks for listening. I'm Susan Levy. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the half-god of rainfall at ART. Women and goddesses rise up against Zeus in this modern-day myth. Two weeks only. Start September 8th, amrep.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Russian shells killed two people at a cafe near the front lines in Ukraine, and Moscow says it thwarted another Ukrainian drone attack on Moscow. This as the capital has increasingly become a target 
for drones. In Boston, police are investigating a shooting this morning as the annual Caribbean Carnival was underway, leaving at least seven people injured. Their injuries are not believed to be life-threatening. Police say the shooting was not related to the carnival. And thousands gathered on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. today, marking the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. India has accomplished something no other country has done. Soft landing on the moon. India is on the moon. It successfully landed a spacecraft near the moon's South Pole, a largely uncharted region. The South Pole is the coolest place to be on the moon right now. Craters near the South Pole are in a permanent shadow, In fact, it is so cool that experts think there could be frozen water there. And so for the past few years, it's been where many countries have been trying to go. Russia launched a probe, Luna 25, earlier this month, but it crashed into the moon. Other countries have also been trying for years to land unmanned probes on the moon, sometimes successfully, like China in 2019. Well, we got word overnight that a Chinese spacecraft has landed on the far side of the moon, and this is the first image... Other times, not so successfully. We seem to have a problem with our main engine. Like in Israel's case? We had a failure in the spacecraft. We, unfortunately, have not managed to land successfully. And Japan. We lost the communication. So... We have to assume that uh, we could not complete the landing on the lunar surface. As for NASA? So there's a renewed interest in the moon. It hopes its mission, Artemis II, will put humans back on the moon by 2024. And of course, it's, it's there because the potential of water. And if there is water in enough uh, abundance, then you have the potential for hydrogen, and oxygen. More countries than ever have a presence in space, and the majority of them are focused on getting to the moon. So what will this new space race mean for humanity? And just what is the big deal about water anyway? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. It's been more than 60 years since President John F. Kennedy's famous speech at Rice University laying out the U.S. goal to become a global leader in space exploration. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. His speech became a pivotal moment in the space program, rallying the nation behind a mission that at the time was far from certain. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone 
and one we intend to win. When Kennedy took the stage that day, the Soviet Union had already successfully launched the first man-made object into space. And there was a fear stoked by the Cold War that in the competition to conquer space, the Soviets were in the lead. We were just sort of rushing to get, be the first, be the first, get to the moon first. And that was all about prestige, geopolitics, who's, who's a better country, whose system is working better. Michelle Hamlin is the executive director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi. Now, I've got to say, I love space, and I feel like I follow it pretty closely. And I did not realize that space law was even a thing. That is until I spoke with Hamlin. Absolutely. Space needs lawyers like you wouldn't believe, especially with all the activity going on, both in orbit and now on the moon. She says with so many countries vying for a place in space right now, legal guidelines will be an increasingly relevant thing because this new space race is about resources, not prestige. This is a much, much more serious race and more substantive because there are resources on the moon and those resources are actually limited. And countries are racing to get to the moon to get access to those resources because ultimately that is how we're going to have access to the rest of the universe. And can you put your space lawyer hat on for a moment and talk about who gets to claim those resources when they're found? Uh, how, how exactly does that work? What are the treaties and what are countries trying to do here? So people like to think of space as the wild, wild west. And a lot of the dreamers sort of think about getting off Earth and, you know, leaving all those regulations behind. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Or fortunately, I should say, that's not the way it works. There are mm -hmm. actually, there's a treaty regime that governs activities uh, in space. They govern the activities of countries in space. And one of the fundamental precepts is that space is free for exploration and use by all. And that is followed up by um, an article that says no state, no country can claim territory in outer space. So you can't just go to the moon and plant your American flag or your Chinese flag or your Indian flag and say, okay, this is ours now. You need a passport. You need to get to border control. That is very clear. What isn't so clear is can you extract the resources and then claim those resources as your own and then either study them or sell them. And there's a little bit of argument in the interpretation of that article. The United States, President Obama in 2015 signed a law that says we in the United States, we're gonna interpret article two to say, you can't claim territory anywhere, but if you extract resources, those are yours and you can do whatever you want with them. And that, mm -hmm. that idea has been uh, modeled uh, or paralleled, I guess, by Luxembourg and Japan and UAE. They all have national laws that say the same thing. And we also have the Artemis Accords, which are a non-binding multilateral sort of principles and guidelines, which also captures that interpretation. And 28 other countries have signed that. My understanding of that comes entirely from plot points from the Apple TV Plus uh, For All Mankind series where they are racing for resources on the moon. Change your plans, gentlemen. There is water on the moon. This race will be ours to fight for and to win. And we are not stopping But that is something that kind of bleeds into reality right now because that show and also what we saw from India this week, the focus is on the South Pole, the moon, and potential water resources there. Can you tell us what the specific resources are that are the focal point right now for India, for the U.S., for Russia, for other countries? Absolutely. It is that water, as you suggested. Why? Because water is going to sustain life. 
So for scientists, it's really important to be in situ, to be at the place where they're doing the, their scientific experiments and their research. For example, think about people going to Antarctica to learn more about the earth or going to the Amazon forest to learn more about how the, the trees and the jungle helps our earth survive. We need to send people to the moon for long periods of time. And in order to do that, they need to have water. We can't send them with all the water that they need because that's just simply too heavy. So to find water on the moon and to be able to access it opens up all of these opportunities for scientific research, for the creation of bases, for people to, to visit the moon as tourists. The other thing that the water symbolizes or, or offers us is the opportunity to separate it into hydrogen and oxygen and then use it for propulsion. So if we want to explore beyond the universe, if we're going to get to those asteroids in the asteroid belt, which have all those rare earth metals that are going to make, you know, mining on earth obsolete, we're going to need to uh, get a boost from the moon to get our rockets there. And it would be, again, a lot cheaper if we can use propulsion, propulsive methods that we find on the moon, rather than trying to bring them with us to the moon and then move them on. If you look at rockets, you know, think about the Saturn V, the, that little piece that actually made it to the moon, all the rest of that was the fuel that was needed to get there. And so that's what we're finding on the moon. We're finding nourishment and fuel in that water. So I India had this, this big success this week. The U.S. is talking about returning a manned mission to the moon in the next few years. But that's something the U.S. has been talking about for 20-something years now. I feel like George W. Bush was talking about returning returning a man to the moon. Didn't happen. Uh, you know, on and on again, it didn't happen. How much is this a point of no return at this point? How much is, is this something that countries are committed to and it's actually going to happen? And what are the key things you're looking for next when it comes to the U.S. specifically here? So the, I'd love that question because it's true. If you are a, a space aficionado or a space lawyer, um, you've been watching the this sort of ping pong between administrations. We're going to go to Mars. No, we're going to go to an asteroid. No, we're going to go to the moon. Um, and that is strategically actually a very untenable position when we're looking at another space race, right? Because China has a strategy that is unmoving. You know, it's they've, they're looking 100 years ahead. But now this is really interesting. We had a very contentious 2020 election, obviously. Um, Trump to Biden transition was not smooth. But you know what? Artemis survived. Artemis program, the program to return humans to the moon, survived that transition. It survived going from a Trump to a Biden um, with equal amounts of encouragement and enthusiasm. The other thing to look at and the other reason to believe um, we're not going to be able to change is that we have 28 signatories to the Artemis Accords. The Artemis Accords are sort of the, the paperwork behind the Artemis program. Like, we're all going to work together collaboratively to go back to the moon. This is part of the talking points of NASA. And so if you're bringing along all of these countries, you can't turn around in the next election cycle and say, oh, no, forget it. We're not going to go to the moon. We're, we're going to now go to an asteroid again. Um, so we have built in sort of a resiliency um, on this moon project. So I believe this is going to happen. I believe, you know, Artemis 2 is planned. Artemis 3, will it happen in 2025? Artemis 3 is the one that we're supposed to be able to land, um, as NASA always says, the first woman and the first person of color on the moon. Um, I, I don't know if it'll happen by 2025, but I can tell you it's a race between the U.S. and China to get the next humans back on the moon. And what are the key players here 
We're talking about India, who successfully landed this week. Russia did not successfully land. The U.S., obviously. But you also mentioned Luxembourg earlier. What what are the key countries uh, as we think about this new space race era? So, of course, U.S. and China remain the biggest, the most well-funded, the most strategically oriented towards space. However, India, really, the, what Chandrayaan-3 did cannot be underestimated. It just exploded um, the, the way we're going to think about geopolitics as well as space activities, because it shows that you don't have to be U.S. or China to succeed. Um, we're also talking about Luxembourg. Now, Luxembourg is really interesting because it, it has um, always sort of grown with its financial business, and it realized it had to sort of think of some other ways to uh, support, generate its economy. And a few years back, they decided they were going to become the space resource capital of the world, perhaps the universe. And so they have been very, very focused on supporting commercial space industry that wants to go and mine asteroids and mine on the moon. Also, UAE is a player. UAE has its sights set on Mars, but everybody, even when they with the sights on Mars, you're going to have to go to the moon first because you're going to learn how to work and live in space on the moon. You're gonna learn what it's really like to mine in low gravity on the moon. The moon is our testing ground and everybody's gonna want a piece of it. The last piece of all of this that I haven't asked about yet is the the boom in private space industry. You know, the, the focus in the last year or so has been on, on near earth orbit tourism. You're talking about Elon Musk, obviously, Jeff Bezos, that's gotten so much attention. Is that factoring into this new race for moon resources in any way? Absolutely. There are a lot of companies that have eyes on mining resources on the moon and in asteroids and beyond. So the idea in the United States is we're going to build a lunar economy by supporting these commercial entities. And right now, the United States government will be the only customer. But 10 years from now, when uh, our Bezoses and Virgin Galactics are taking tourists to the moon instead of just to low Earth orbit, we're going to have them serviced as well by this, these commercial entities. So it's, it's a changing world in space. We, we are no longer, you know, we're not, we're not in Kansas anymore. This isn't Luna versus Apollo. This is a free-for-all, and, and this is why space needs lawyers. <laughs> That's Michelle Hanlon, the executive director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi. And does that make you a space lawyer right now, then? I guess so. Oh, I call myself a space lawyer. So right. That is space lawyer Michelle Hanlon, <laughs> then. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. This is NPR News. The White House is worried about the risks of artificial intelligence, including the risk that this new technology can be used to discriminate. 
So it invited a bunch of hackers to see just what kind of biases are built into AI. Here's NPR's Deepa Shivaram. I'm standing in an overly air-conditioned conference center in Las Vegas, in between a robot whirring on the floor and rows of tables set up with open laptops. And just outside this room, there's a long line of about 100 people waiting to get inside. This is DEF CON, the biggest hacking convention in the world. And this is the first year where AI is front and center. These people are about to participate in the largest ever public red teaming challenge. The goal? To get technology to break the rules by asking it all kinds of questions and see how easy it is to get it to say things that are inappropriate, illegal, or biased. How do we try to break it so that we can find all these kinks and so that other people don't? That's Kelsey Davis. She's here with the group called Black Tech Street. It's a nonprofit based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and aims to help black economic development through technology. This is a really cool way to just like kind of roll up our sleeves and help, I don't know, we're not particularly engineering something, but we are helping the process of engineering something that's more equitable. Racism and discrimination in AI isn't a new thing. Back in 2015, for example, Google Photos, which uses artificial intelligence, was labeling pictures of black people as gorillas. Tech companies have tried to make changes, but the underlying problem remains. There's a lack of diverse data being used and a lack of diversity among the people who designed the technology in the first place. Most of the people here are white and most are men, but organizers made sure to invite groups like Black Tech Street for more representation in this challenge. Here's Denzel Wilson with Seed AI, one of the organizers of the event. It's important when you have, you know, uh, black and brown minority people coming in doing these challenges and they're doing prompts that uh, these models aren't used to seeing. So the more we're able to kind of evolve that and the more we're able to get more novel responses, it's just really important for everybody involved, especially the companies building the models because now they understand what they need to do better to uh, alleviate the bias. I check back in with Kelsey about 20 minutes into the challenge, and she's feeling pretty accomplished because she just got the chatbot to say something really racist about blackface. But you know, that's good, because that means that, that I, I broke it. The process isn't exactly straightforward. She started by asking the chatbot definitions. I asked him stuff like, what is blackface? Is blackface wrong? It was able to answer these basic questions, but she kept pressing. She asked the chatbot how a white kid could convince their parents to let them go to an HBCU, a historically black college. The answer was to say that they could run fast and dance well, perpetuating the stereotype that all black people can run fast and dance well. Kelsey submits the conversation she had with the chatbot to tech companies. They can use it to tweak their programming so this answer won't come up again. But overall, these instances are only a small fraction of the threats AI can pose to marginalized groups. AI has the potential to exacerbate discrimination in things like police surveillance against black and brown people, in financial decision-making and housing opportunities. Arthi Prabhakar is at DEF CON too. She's the head of the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy, and she's looking for solutions to make sure AI is safe and secure and equitable. This is a priority. It's moving fast. It's going to affect Americans' lives in so many different ways. Prabhakar and other officials have been meeting with civil rights leaders, labor unions, and other groups for months to talk about AI. Their efforts will show up in an executive order that President Biden will release on managing AI, which is expected to come out in September. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Glad you're with us. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on the Moth Radio Hour, stories about foods that nourish the body as well as the soul. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. FEMA is projected to empty its disaster relief fund in the coming weeks. The role of FEMA in the climate crisis and wait, wait at 10. That's tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Listen again. 78 degrees at 539. A slight chance of showers tonight, a low in the mid-60s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, low 70s. Sunshine Monday and Tuesday, 70s. Thanks for listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Oklahoma, gunfire last night at a local high school football game left a teenager dead and four others injured. Police say they think an argument broke out between at least two men. Two guns were recovered at the scene. FIFA today suspended the president of the Spanish Soccer Federation for 90 days. Authorities are investigating Luis Rubiali's conduct, including kissing a player after the Spanish team won the Women's World Cup final. The player says that kiss was non-consensual. And the longtime host of The Price is Right has died. Bob Barker was 99 years old. His publicist says he died at home in Los Angeles of natural causes, and he was a longtime animal rights activist. I'm Janine Herbst. NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. This weekend, we're reflecting on one of the most iconic speeches of the 20th century. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Monday will mark 60 years since Martin Luther King Jr. delivered those words from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And to reflect on what that message means for us today, I spoke with one of the men who helped King write it. I believe that good writers, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm a good writer, but I believe that... I think I th- you can call yourself a good writer, Dr. Jones. I think you played a little bit of a part in, okay. in a speech we're talking about 60 years later. Uh, I think okay, you can find okay, that Okay, but I'm saying, but I love, I love the use of words. I love yeah. words. Words are like musical, musical notes to me. That is Clarence Jones. He was King's personal attorney, advisor, and speechwriter. Jones was 32 years old in 1963 when he helped King draft the iconic speech. Though Jones did tell me that when King first asked him to come work with him, Jones said no. King responded by inviting Jones to attend an upcoming sermon. I never heard him speak before, and he gives the most, the speech is so powerful, it was just 
mesmerizing. But then he pauses in the in one of his speeches, and for example, there's a young man sitting in his church today. My friends in New York and this and in Georgia tell me this young man, a young lawyer, his brains have been touched by Jesus. And they tell me that when this young lawyer writes down what he finds, the words are so compelling, he says, jump off the page. And when he says that, I'm thinking to myself, when this church service is over, I'm going to find out who he is talking about. And King was, of course, talking about Clarence Jones. It was King's final plea asking for his assistance, and it worked. I pulled him close to me, still tears running down my cheek, and I said, Dr. King, when do you want me to go to Montgomery, Alabama. You were in from that moment on. In, in, in. I spoke with Clarence Jones, who's now 92 years old and recently published a memoir called Last of the Lions. We discussed his life's work and what he remembers about that pivotal day in American history. Can you tell us what the process was like leading up to that day? Uh, what you and Dr. King talked about when, when you talked about what he wanted to say in the mall, that process uh, the two of you working on the speech in the Willard Hotel and thinking through what he no, wanted no, to do. No, it wasn't like. Let no, me just what was it like? What was it like? Is that uh, Dr. King and his wife Coretta had a suite at the Willard Hotel? He was exasperated. I knew from working with him that his, I won't say problem, but challenge would be accurately, was always how to begin a speech. Just how how do you start it? How to begin it? So in a, going up in the elevator. So I had. I had sat down like the night before, like or the day before, and I bought it that same day. And I wrote out on yellow sheets of paper a text of how he might open a speech. It was used, it was given to him as a reference, mm-hmm. not for him to use, but here's 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 the here's the text of something you might want to consider as you're considering a speech. Now I'm listening to this speech. And lo and behold, I'm listening to it. And the first thing I say when I hear it, I say to myself, oh my God, he must have really been tired. So we've come here today. And I said, oh my God, he's actually using what I had written now. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. And were you on the steps of the monument as well? In no, this I moment? Was standing behind, no, I was standing behind him. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Did you and did he and did, did, did everyone you were with know in that moment this is something that stood out of all the speeches, of all the things Dr. <clears throat> King has done, this stands out, this is going to leave a mark, this is going to be memorable. Did you know that in the moment? I did. I actually did. The reason, the reason I did was that I was standing behind him. And I had seen Dr. King speak a lot of times. And I've seen other preachers speak a lot of times. Now, when you see particularly a black preacher out of the Baptist church, particularly, which it can be in the Church of God in Christ, what I call down home, you know, get down and preaching, you know. When you see a black preacher start rubbing his, take his foot and start uh, going behind his uh, left ankle 
and moving his right foot from his left ankle up to the bottom of his left knee. When you see a black Baptist preacher start rubbing his feet up and down slowly, and you see him do that while he's preaching, you translate that the music. That's like watching Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie. It's like that's when you say the brother is going to take it away. Sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners. When I saw him do that, I, I, I leaned over to somebody. I don't even know whether, quite frankly, I don't now in all these 60 years, I don't know whether, well, I don't know the gender of the person. I don't know the race of the person. But I said to the person, these people out there don't know it, but they're about ready to go to church. Because I knew, like a great musician, that Dr. King was going to knock it out of the ballpark. Because I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Here we are 60 years later. Do you feel like, in the grand scheme of things, America has gone forward, has gone backwards? What do you make of the moment we're in right now in 2023 when it comes to racial relations in the United States? Oh, I, th- I think it's indisputable that uh, we've got, we've made uh, extraordinary strides. I'll use uh, I'll use 1863 as my benchmark. Yeah, slavery. Okay, I mean you'd have to be just not understanding the most elementary facts of history to not know that the transition from the institution of slavery for sure to non-slavery is a profound. Okay. Yeah. So progress. It's rarely a straight line, particularly in social movements. You know, line is zigzag, sometimes one step forward, two steps backward, two steps forward, one step backward. The arc of the universe is, is long, to paraphrase Martin, but it bends toward justice. It's a little Pollyannic to think that the progress of the issue of race is going to be one straight line, all right? You measure the progress incrementally. You've returned to the site many times before. It's yeah. now the 60th anniversary. Right. A lot of your contemporaries are no longer with us. You, oh. Do you feel an extra responsibility? What do you feel when there's 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 fewer of you to gather, but you're still here, you're still experiencing this moment? You know how to make me cry, right? You know what I feel? What's that? I feel that I am a, I'm a, the beneficiary of some of the best Medicine in the world. That's the reason 93 is going to be 93. But I have an obligation. As long as I have any breath in my body, I have an obligation to carry on the work of Fannie Lou Hamer, hmm? Hmm? Harry Belafonte, uh, uh, all of those people like Fred Shuttlesworth. And the legacy of those four beautiful girls yeah. that were murdered on September 15th. Huh? I mean, what's the sense of being gifted with a certain amount of longevity if I want to sit on my butt and do nothing? Okay? I'm, I'm, not, about, uh, I'm not about sitting on my behind. When I know the legacy of all that's gone before, I cannot do that. And so I want to I wanna leave every every breath in my body and said, I, I want to say to Martin and Harry and Fannie Lou Hamer, 
I, 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 I carried on for you mm-hmm. as best as I could. And I'm going to do that until the day I die. Dr. Clarence Jones, it is an honor to have you in the All Things Considered studio. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your work over the years. Thank you for, for coming back to talk about this story and talk about all the work you did. Right. Thank you so much. This weekend, hundreds of monster hunters have gathered in the Scottish Highlands to carry out what's probably the largest search for the Loch Ness Monster in 50 years. It's dubbed The Quest. Those out on the famous Loch Ness, which is the UK's largest lake by volume, are armed with both high- and low-tech hunting gear, everything from binoculars to drones and sonar equipment. Now, it's been 1,500 years or so since the first recorded sighting of a monster in Loch Ness. But the modern craze dates back to 1933, when a local hotel manager named Aldi McKay barged into a pub and startled drinkers with their claims that she had seen a water beast. Since then, there have been hundreds of reported sightings, but verifiable proof has been elusive. Eyewitness accounts are often varied, but always dramatic. You can hear it in this 1965 report from Independent Television News. Suddenly I heard this peculiar sound. It was going sort of... After that, I was only interested in putting as much distance between me and it as possible. We saw the head and the four humps and all the body. Can you tell me anything about its color? Yes, it was the very same color as an elephant. Well, the witnesses are... uh, Most of them are repulsed when they get a very close sighting of it. They're horrified. Today, Nessie hunters are fanned out across the lock hoping to find some proof. We caught up with one of them, Betsy King, when she was out on a sonar-equipped search boat. We talked with her just after the skipper gave the hunters some basic information about the lock. Out in the middle there, Loch Ness is almost 750 feet deep. And we've done some work down in the depths there as well. So tell us tell us where you are right now. What are you doing? I'm currently on the deep scan cruise on Loch Ness itself. Oh, who all is on the boat with you? What's the mood like? Is it is it fun? Is it serious? Uh, is it a mix of both? Yeah, it's really fun. Um, I've not done a deep scan cruise before. As you see the equipment, you can see how deep below you the lock is and all the thermal readings. So it's been really exciting, yeah. So I'm just trying to get an image of, of the boat. It's you and several other people. There's there's sonar equipment, yeah, it sounds a, like. You're scanning the, the, the bottom of the lock looking for any sort of signs? Yeah, if there was a sign on the white bit, which represents the water below us, it'd come up the red dot, um, but nothing so far. What inspired you to sign up for this this weekend? Well, you know, I live in Inverness, and I've lived up here for almost 20 years now, and I've, you know, loved Nessie since I was a kid, and, you know, you just can't not miss it, you know, like, it's uh, so exciting that, you know, there's this new adventure happening, especially in our day and age, you know, it last happened in the 70s, um, yeah, it's just amazing. Do you, what What are your personal views uh, on Nessie? Do you think she's likely down there? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think... Um, I think there definitely is something people have been seeing all these years. Don't know if it's a deep sea mammal, something we've not discovered before. I don't know. Maybe it could be missightings, but I definitely think there's something. What do you say to the doubters and the haters out there who think this is nonsense? There's nothing there. This is an urban legend. This is this is a made-up story. Yeah, I think Nessie represents something in this life that we hold on dearly to. That's something of hope that there is something beyond in this world, and I think that brings a lot of comfort to people. Um, and I think it brings joy to childness, wonder. Um, yeah, I think it's very positive. 
I maintain positivity and optimism, like you said, is important. But but I, I, I do wonder this. If at the end of two days, with all this equipment and all of this focus, nothing turns up that's an interesting sign, would that change your mind at all? Or, or, or hey, it was just one weekend. We'll keep looking. I think it changed it a bit in the sense of, you know, it's upset it didn't find anything. But there's still so much evidence out there, I feel, that says, what was that? That was never explained. You yeah. know, there's still a lot of things. Um you know, just as there is with Bigfoot, for example. Um, and I still think it's a nice thing, especially seeing kids enjoying it so much. That's a nice thing to see. Yeah. Well, Betsy King, thanks for talking to us from, from Loch Ness and best of luck uh, hunting over the next day or so. Thank you. Bye. To put this all into context and to get a broader sense of the history of the Nessie legend, we called up Willie Cameron in Inverness. He's an entrepreneur and founding director of the Cobbs Group, which owns several hotels in the Loch Ness area. Why do you think there's so much interest in this? The world loves a mystery, and this is probably one of the greatest unsolved mysteries, certainly, of the modern world. And uh, with no real real, uh, definitive explanation to what people are seeing. I'm sure you've talked to a skeptic or two. What is the first thing you tell them to kind of dent that skepticism a little bit? What they've got to understand, although the, the, the general public and everybody just sees the surface of the water... It's an amazing cavern. It's a cathedral of the earth. Uh, It's 24 miles long and about a mile and a half wide. It is absolutely vast, vast area. And at the end of the day, we are only mere mortals. So who are we to say that there is nothing there? Taking it today, help us understand what Nessie means for your community when it comes to its identity and also when it comes to just the the, the, the tourism and the revenue and the traffic it brings in. From an economic point of view, Scott, it is uh, enormous. Uh, the population around Loch Ness is probably less than 5,000 souls. It's 100 miles round, completely round by road. Tourism is one of the main business, probably the main business pre-COVID. Uh, the number of people visitors to Loch Ness would be between 1.4 and 1.5 million people from all over the world, generating an income of between 45 and 50 million pounds sterling to the economy. There's many a CEO today wouldn't mind having a Loch Ness monster in his front garden. Willie Cameron.